Welcome to Texas Fame Law Unfiltered. I'm your host, Justin Jackson, alongside my associate attorney, Myron Kamahara. We're the Jackson Law Firm based in Cedar Park, Texas, just north of Boston. We created the show because there isn't a show about Texas family law that cuts through the BS. We're here to give you the unvarnished truth, the good, bad, and the other. But remember, nothing we say is legal advice specific to you. Every case is different. If you would like a free consultation with our office, call us at 512-528-1900 or just visit us on the web at www.thejacksonfirm.com. That's T-H-E jacksonfirm.com. Thanks and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Texas Family Law Unfiltered. This is episode number two. I'm Justin Jackson alongside Myron Kamahara and we're here today to talk about fault in Texas divorces and the title of this episode is It's All Your Fault which is a phrase we've probably heard before. For sure. Especially being in a relationship. I mean, um, from the, the fights at home to maybe the fights at court um, and your attorney is there to to guide you through what uh, what fault is in the Texas Family Code. And this episode is dedicated to identifying um, and, and even pointing out some of the evidence that we use to find fault in a divorce in Texas. Uh, really, the Texas Family Code in Chapter 6, Section 001 to 007 has, has the list of uh, faults. And really, it's six faults, Justin. Um, the first one is the no fault or general terminology that we use of insupportability. So insupportability, um, I, what exactly does that mean? So insupportability... It means discord or conflict of personalities that destroys the legitimate ends of the marital relationship and prevents any reasonable expectation of reconciliation. Okay. Very long, long definition um, without really any meaning in those words. Right? I was going to say a, a whole lot of lawyer talk there. So if you're a, a listener going, just talk straight. Like what is insupportability and all that gibberish mean? Like what, what would a court typically apply that term too. Right. So the, the lay, the lay language, I guess, if you will, uh, for insubordability is basically husband and wife want to get a divorce and the court is going to grant a divorce based off this basis, which in Texas family code attributes no fault to any party alone. Okay. So that's, that is the no fault ground. Like if people just say, Hey, things aren't working out. Right. So not to go too far off, but we do contested and uncontested cases. And sometimes spouses come to us and they have everything worked out. They don't need to go to court and they just want us to put it on paper. And we use this basis um, in order to achieve that goal, uh, which is to get the divorce done without no fault at all on one party. And you brought up an interesting point because we do have uh, plenty of clients that will come in with a no-fault case and they want that fault indicator. Um, I I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience has been when a client asks for that, uh, first of all, I usually say it's not, you know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Right. Number two, I'll advise them that uh, my experience has been, I've even tried a couple of times to put it in there because my client insisted and the judge has said, this is an uncontested case. And because it's an uncontested case, I will not include any indication of fault 
even if both sides agree to sign off on it. Has that been your experience as well? Yes, yes. That, that's actually a good point. I mean, I've had judges tell me that as well. Um, but, you know, in, in the same chapter, we go over, it, it also leads into the fault basis for a divorce. And we have six of those, right? The first one being, uh, or actually, I should say, this, the, the first basis for fault being cruelty under this section. And that means that the court may grant divorce in favor of one spouse if the other spouse is guilty of cruel treatment towards complaining spouse of, of a nature that renders further living together insubordinable. Again, these are a lot of words that mean little to the lay person. In your experience, um, how, how would you describe cruelty for our listeners? Yeah, I, you know, we're probably going to articulate similar bases. I mean, cruelty is a term that if you lined up 100 people on the street, every one of them would have a different definition of cruelty. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where, of course, we, we have to put on our how would a judge think hat. And, you know, judges are way more callous to the kind of things that people ordinarily consider cruelty because they're bombarded constantly with these types of claims, these types of cases, ranging from just run of the mill bad to the worst you've ever heard. And so they knowing that judges are slightly callous to the claim of cruelty, um, it's gotta be more than just, he was mean to me or she was mean to me. She, you know, might, might've been verbally abusive at times. It's going to be more than that. It, it's going to be things like domestic violence that can be proven. Right. It's going to be, you know, long-term um, abuse that potentially might've led to a spouse seeking uh therapy that is verifiable uh, in terms of the way it, it connects to the other spouse. Just we're talking like more on the severe spectrum. Right. And, and I would agree with that as well. Moving on to the second one. The second one is adultery. Um, this is a term that pretty much everyone understands, right? It, it's stepping outside of the marriage um, and the court can find in favor of one spouse if the other spouse has committed adultery. And again, um, I have had a lot of clients come to me uh, with this particular fault basis, um, I've added it in there. Um, but to a certain extent, this fault basis has to be proved up in court eventually in order to get the effects that you want from a false basis divorce. Have you have you had a, an experience where you've had to prove of adultery as well? Oh, yeah, countless times. I mean, the adultery is one of the more common uh, reasons to get divorced. Sure, sure. And sometimes it's not even proven or provable, sometimes it's suspicions. Those are the hard ones because, you know, you've had clients where they are adamant that it's happened, but all they have are some text messages that eh, were inappropriate. And so, uh, you know, it, it, adultery, uh, if it's not clear cut, it's also one of those that I tend to uh, have clients, you know, try to focus their attention on things that I think will lead to a better outcomes yeah. rather than spend a lot of money trying to find, you know, who the person was or what, what really happened. Um, I, a question for you, though, is, is um, and this is another really big question I've gotten a lot from clients is, uh, let's say the divorce has been filed. Both spouses have never gone with outside the marriage with anyone. But they at, a, at some point, let's say a couple months into the divorce, they say, you know, look, I, I came across an old friend of mine. We, things might lead to another. Uh, is that appropriate in a post divorce, post separation context? Or do you find that there's problems with that? What's your experience? Um, you know, it, it, it would depend. I mean, 
I, if they're just talking with each other, I don't find it uh, to be too bad, but I always just, I, I err on the side of caution um, always with, with this type of situation. And I tell uh, my, my client, either male or female, like, let's just wait. Um, you know, we, we can, we can talk to this person, but let's just wait because I don't want any evidence of adultery against you or else it can lead to a fault-based divorce. Yeah, you're right. Because what could happen if someone, you know, assumes to some degree, it's not, it is not entirely wrong to think, well, we're separated and it's, it's okay for me to move on. You know, there's a divorce on file. Um, but on the flip side, if you start that relationship, the other spouse can perceive that maybe that relationship existed before prior to the filing. The, yes. And so then you're just adding complications. So I agree with you, Myron. I, we advise the same things. Um, I just want to add that, uh, in my, if, if I were to be as, if I were to be as kind as possible to my client, I would give them some graces to engage in some, you know, possible dating, things like that, post-separation, as long as number one, they are not making it a blatant thing. They're not rubbing it in anyone's face. They're not posting things on social media. They're not telling all the neighbor, you know, all the neighbors in the, in the, you know, the community about it. They're keeping a little bit of discretion. About right. It. Um, as long as that's happening, I would say most of the time it doesn't end up being a deal, but I will, you and I, we always have to default back to what is the safest route, right? Right. And I, I, I use that too. I, I tell them, do not post anything on social media, right? Uh, keep yourself private and, and keep your relationships private. The next one is pretty interesting though, because it's conviction of a felony. And who knew the Texas family court can find fault on your spouse uh, for, for being a felon, right? And it basically, the code says that, the court can find fault on the other party if convicted of a felony has been in prison for at least one year in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, a federal penitentiary or a penitentiary of another state and has not been pardoned. So you need all three of those requirements in order to find fault in in your spouse. Um, in my career, I rarely have come across this issue. I've abutted um not not even as close as I possibly could, but perhaps there is a consultation that came in with us uh with the soon-to-be ex-spouse um convicted, uh excuse me, not convicted, charged, but not yet convicted with a felony. And so I don't think I've ever had this where all three of those requirements have have been present and that we could find fault basis on that party. Have you seen this in your career? You know. Uh, I love that we're talking about this to be exhaustive, but I've actually never uh, pled for or sought a divorce on the conviction of a felony. And it's just interesting that it's here because I'm sure there's the case out there and it might be just after this show, we'll get a call. <laughs> right. But I haven't really had, I would say, experience having this pursue this ground. Right. Well, another one, well, the next one I should say is abandonment. And this one I, I've seen quite a lot as well is when one spouse um, or I should say that the court can find fault on one spouse if the other spouse left the complaining spouse with the intention of abandonment. Um, and it also goes into a second requirement where that leaving spouse remained away for at least one year. Now, again, this one does have some terms in here that could be uh, perceived, not perceived, but defined that 
subjectively, right? What, how do you prove up the intention of abandonment? And what does that look like now to the lay person? And even to me, sometimes if, if one spouse leaves, if I get a consultation and one spouse leaves and doesn't call, doesn't have, doesn't convey an intention to come back to me, that's abandonment. And, and you could plea on that basis. Have you seen this a lot in your career? Not a whole lot. And, and it's interesting because I, I, in some ways I've, I've looked at that provision a number of times and wondered like how distinct it really is from number one, insupportability. Uh, if it's of a, the more severe variety, how is it so distinct from cruelty? Because if you've got someone who's just ditched you and let maybe left a note or didn't leave a note, just disappeared. Um, that certainly can be uh, a, a cruel act. Right. Um, and so I can see how that would overlap with cruelty. I can also see where maybe on a more innocent nature, it's just both sides knew that it wasn't going to work and one just disappeared. And you could say, well, isn't that a insupportability issue where you go discord or conflict of personalities that destroys the legitimate ends of the marriage relationship and prevents any reasonable expe expectation of reconciliation, which is that's just the reading of the insupportability definition. So, you know, I, I think that a good practitioner um, uh, who's, you know, attorney working on the case could potentially, instead of just filing abandonment, could either file under insupportability or cruelty and technically make the same arguments. But it, it, there could be a unique case, I think, where you go, the abandonment provision might be more apt. To me, the abandonment provision is almost the next step down the timeline from insupportability uh, because it, it assumes that they've been gone for a year. So, uh, you know, and in supportability, they, they could technically be still cohabitating together. So that's the way I look at it. The next one is living apart, right? And um, this one is where a, a divorce of either spouse, if the spouse have lived apart without cohabitation for at least three years, I've seen this a lot with um, many of my, my older clients that just haven't sought a divorce or court intervention but have been living financially and physically separate from their spouse, um, some up to 20 years. Uh, have you had the same experiences I have? I haven't had that before. And uh, those are really odd ones. I mean, you could almost dedicate a, a large part of the show to those because there's so many strange oddities that come out in those cases. You know, For example, I've had somewhere the client comes in, they've been separated, uh, living apart, for so many years. And their assumption is what's his is his, what's mine is mine. Yeah, it's painful to even talk like a uh, talk about this because it, what I have to explain to them is it's not the case. In fact, the last 10, whatever, 15 years that they've been building that retirement or whatever else unbeknownst to them, typically, yeah, they're going to have to you know split that with someone that they really don't know anything about anymore. Right. And, and didn't think that that would ever come into play. Yeah. I have, had in the past a case where um, the wife had accrued a lot in her retirement and also purchased um, a house. And, you know, obviously she, she had to have the signature of the husband uh, after they separated to purchase that house. But she thought that the house was free and clear for her, you know, and I had to explain to her that, 
no, <laughs> you know, the, the family code is still going to um, control the distribution of marital assets. And it, it was a, a tough pill for her, to, for her to swallow. Moving on to the next uh, fault base is going to be confinement in a mental hospital. I don't think I've ever came across this issue in, in any one of my consultations or any one of my cases, but it basically says that the court can find fault on one spouse, right? If at the time the suit is filed, the other spouse has been confined in a state mental hospital or private mental hospital. Um, and, and that's defined in the health and safety code in this state or, or any other state for at least three years. There's also a second requirement that it appears that the hospitalized spouse's mental disorder is of such a degree and nature that adjustment is unlikely or that if adjustment occurs, a relapse is probable. I don't even want to get into how to prove this up. I never had it come across my desk ever in my career. Have you had any experience with this fault base? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is if I think if clients really were to get their hands on this provision, uh, that would be what they would ask us to file on the most. <laughs> That's and that true. is, they would say, my spouse's mental disorder is of such a degree in nature <laughs> that adjustment is unlikely, or if if adjustment occurs, a relapse is probable. Relapse is probable. I mean, right? <laughs> you know, so <laughs> reading it out loud is funny because I I imagine uh, just a line of clients running to uh, you know our office or calling our our phones as soon as the podcast is published going, we need to change the way we filed the divorce. But, <laughs> but you know, the reality is uh, yes, we have had clients uh, that have had spouses who have at some point in time been institutionalized, whether it be alcohol or some kind of severe depression, suicidal ideation, you know, life's hard. There are situations where this happens, but the code doesn't, it's not intending to apply to your run of the mill case, certainly where uh, a spouse is just a little mentally imbalanced. It's got to be uh, of the degree as specified in the code where either there's been that confinement for three years, which holy, I mean, that's, that's a long time. That's a really long time to be confined in a mental hospital. Right. Uh, I, I've never had a case where that applied. I'm not saying it couldn't or where, there's this verifiable mental disorder of such a degree that the adjustment is unlikely or if adjustment occurs, a relapse is probable. I don't think they're just talking about uh, what's, your, what's your favorite mental disorder you hear uh, clients complain about their spouse? Uh, he or she's a narcissist. How many times do you hear that in a given week, Myron? <laughs> At least 25 times. Yeah. And not all from the same client, right? No, no. From different clients. Yeah. And the interesting part about it, how often do you hear in the deposition or in the testimony of the other spouse who is supposed to be the narcissist? How many times do you hear them claim the other side is the narcissist? Probably always. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when it when it comes to mental disorders, and this is not uh, making trivial light of, of people going through divorce and how awful spouses can be, there are scenarios where there are narcissists out there, right? You know, true narcissists in every sense of the word, but it does get tossed around a little too heavy. It is. It is. Yeah. I mean, in everything nowadays, I mean, from conversations to, to, to even um, social media postings, right? Yeah. A narcissist. Yeah. You know, you know, what's funny about this one though. I'm surprised that the, the state legislature hasn't extended this to 
um, substance abuse. It, it just says mental disorder. Um, but I, I've had clients and, and even consultations that come in where substance abuse is a big factor in part of the mental disorder and, and, and why they're getting a divorce, you know, um, be, because someone is just abusing alcohol, for example, and, and they just can't, the, 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 the client or potential client who comes in to see me, um, their spouse is either being hospitalized or in some type of rehab for substance abuse. And I'm just surprised that the code doesn't attribute fault to something like that as well. Well, you know, and, and I know we're kind of like lasering on, on this one factor. I mean, we can always sneak it in on one of the other factors, cruelty or, right. or things of that sort. That is true. Right. Cruelty um, is kind of like a, a wide casting net as well. It's the catch all really. But I agree with you though. It really could be a separate uh, component because they make this, they make this mental disorder provision a little vague, mm-hmm. which is really one of the hallmarks of the family code. Would you agree with me on that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. It might be a hallmark of law period because they, they like to cast a wide, uh, wide net. Yeah. Know? And it's not as, um, understandable is probably a, a wrong word. It, it, it's not as specific as we would like it to be in order to get a home run when we have evidence and, and, and a case so that we can consult our clients properly. But yeah, it's, it's a wide casting net that is, is something where we have to have experience in, in the judge that we're, we're presenting evidence to in order to give a, a realistic view of how a case will, or, or an issue will, would be, um, would fare in that courtroom. Yeah. And I, you know, this is probably for another podcast, but I just want to add to that, that you know, the family code is sometimes so vague that it really frustrates clients. It frustrates even practitioners like us. But, you know, when you really sit back and think about it, if you had a code that was just, so specific, so precise in exactly every instance in, in kind of the most clear, specific terms, there's a chance that it would leave something out. Yes. And so it, it kind of goes both ways. If you have a code that's too specific, it leaves stuff out. If you have a code that's too vague, then you deal with the code we have now, which you complain of. Well, we just don't know exactly what fits. And of course, a judge is the, is the person that has that discretion. And there's probably an infinite amount of possibilities as well. So I don't think the, the state legislature can plan for every single possibility. Justin, we talked about, in our experience, the the uncommon fault-based divorce. But there are common ones that we come across all the time. One being infidelity. And again, you know, it's the action or state of being unfaithful to a spouse. Um, the I get this a lot where we have consultations, clients come in, I have current clients uh, where we're filing on a false-based divorce um, and we need evidence. I always tell them we need evidence, give me evidence. I get circumstantial evidence and sometimes I get direct evidence. What type of evidence would you say you would like from your client if you're going in to prove up um, infidelity? Well, uh, let's uh, let's get a little into the sorted for a moment. 
um, I've gotten folders of nude pictures, uh, sometimes, you know, way more than you would ever need in a court of law. <laughs> that you, your the, your client dumps on you partly because they're they're hoping to shame the other side right uh, with the volume of the photos sure uh, and the text messages and all that so I, I don't know if I would say I, I would like this evidence but it helps if you have some evidence that is explicit to some degree whether it's a text message that's explicit whether it's a photo that's explicit. Um, you know, my wife hates when I talk about this because she's she knows that I have to accept these photos. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but <laughs> but we, we, that's that is evidence that we have to uh, receive in a case like this where we're talking about adultery. Um, I will I will say that evidence that I consider uh, probative towards adultery is not always the kind of evidence that client thinks is probative of, a, of an adultery type scenario. Yeah, that's uh, true. An example is a text message that says, you know, um, th that's slightly flirtatious, um, maybe talking about getting coffee or, or having a long conversation together, or maybe just excessive texting between a, a man and a woman that Genuinely is probably not appropriate right. in a marital context, but that doesn't include indications that sexual contact has occurred. Uh -huh. And and I want to ask you about that. I mean, in, in your experience, uh, you know, what what have you found as effective evidence or ineffective evidence? I would say I, I agree with you. Um, the one case I can think of that I proved up infidelity was a correspondence and it was a text message between the wife um and her her boss actually a superior um and it was we got the transcript of the text message but very very sexual in nature um which was so explicit it described what she was doing to herself and what he was doing to himself at the same time that they are corresponding with each other <laughs> and it even went so far as to say when they were both finished yeah so that was the most explicit i i had um at that point um and you know i, I it worked obviously we were able to prove up infidelity I, I think the other part of that would be or the flip side of that would be a I would agree with you. It would just be multiple messages with no sexual connotations, no, no indication of sexual um, activity between the parties um, that just proved that they were corresponding with each other and not necessarily uh, having any sexual relations with each other. So I would agree with that. I, also, I had another client that just showed me pictures of her taking a picture of her husband and his mistress together in a restaurant. And that didn't do much at all. That just showed two people sitting next to each other, uh, even supplemented by her testimony as well. So I, I think that, you know, correspondences are good, but it has to be very indicative that the two parties have engaged in, in sexual relations in order to prove up or in, I should say, in order to make it easy for the court to to find infidelity, because most of it 
is going to be circumstantial evidence where the court has to make an assumption, a logical jump um, from from these text messages. You're never going to get a video of husband or wife with a partner outside of their marriage having sex. At least not not in any time that I've had uh, infidelity fault based divorce. Yeah, I, I agree with you that you know the judge ultimately just has to make to some degree a leap. Now, with the string of texts you said earlier, the judge didn't have to make a leap, but most cases the judge has to make a little bit of a leap, even because sometimes there could be a scenario where where uh, a man and a woman are you know spouse and a man or a woman or whoever it is are uh, engaging in extremely explicit conversation, but potentially they never fall through on it. Um, technically, that does not meet the adultery standard. Um, you know, sexual communications don't meet it. Um, now, what I'll, what I'll add to that is that in my experience, we have to remember judges are just people like us. Yes. Uh, except for the fact, like I said earlier, they're a little more callous than your ordinary person. Granted, they're trained in this area. They hear all these cases constantly. But I still think, and I tell clients this, if, if, a, if an ordinary person, you know, like the standard ordinary person would look at this and go, there's very little question in my mind that there's sexual conduct happening. That's probably how a judge is going to look at it too. Is that what your experience is? Yes, I, I would agree with that. I mean, if a reasonable person can make this logical jump and assumption that sexual uh, relations is occurring, then I, I think a judge is, is probably along that same line. I mean, what else does he have to go on? That's why, you know, besides what is presented as evidence. I wanted to ask you though, now in this day and age, there is an agreement between sometimes the married couple that they can go out and have other partners um, and possibly even together, right? And, and of course, we call them swingers. I I, I don't know if that's, I, I don't even know what that even encompasses. I, I just know generally that it's basically an agreement that they go out and find other partners together. I don't know if it's separately though. So yeah, you know, there are probably multiple versions of this type of marital arrangement. And um, even though I've been doing this for working on 18 years, I still don't know all of the varieties because it seems like there's new ones that are coming out every day, but I'll, I'll just say there's a few, there's obviously there's an open marriage, an open marriage, as I understand it is there. It's just kind of like, just don't, don't make it obvious. You know, you do what you need to do behind the scenes, but just don't make it obvious. Don't, you know, make a fool of me or yourself. Right. Uh, and that's, that's a super loose, non exact definition. That's just my, my explanation of it. Then of course you can go full blown swingers where there's probably full blown knowledgeable spousal swapping with people possibly in the same environment right. doing things that we don't need to discuss on the show. But, um, uh, I did have an interesting case, though. Uh, this this topic reminds me of a really interesting case I had, and it, it, I had a client come in, and he he complained right at the beginning that his wife had committed adultery, and that he needed the obviously the fault based divorce based upon adultery. We started peeling back that onion, and they were swingers, and of course I had to stop him at some point and get back to the beginning of our conversation and say, "Wait a minute, you told me earlier you wanted a." 
fault-based divorce based on adultery. Like, what am I missing here? Right. You guys are swingers. Right. Well, and, th- and this just goes into the complexity of these arrangements because he told me, well, there's a huge difference when I've consented to the swinging versus when I've not consented to the swinging. So he wanted to, he wanted me, he wanted to pay me thousands of dollars right. to go in front of a judge right. and explain the distinction between I agree for her to have sex with this man versus I did not agree with her to have sex with this other man. Uh, I'm now I'm curious though. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately um, I'm a fairly strong personality. I think you are too. Right. Uh, I was able to educate the client enough and, and explain to him that it was just not going to be a good use of resources. Yeah. And so he stood down. I got you. Well, well that's good. Uh, I would have definitely, yeah, I would have been very strong with them. <laughs> and then, then look, we don't, we both don't want to look like idiots in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Especially on the record. Yeah. No, you know, the interesting part about this is that I've actually had um, a different experience than you have. I had a client who was accused of infidelity and evidence came out on his testimony that they were swingers. She never confirmed it um, on during her testimony, but evidence was still on record. And I guess this goes to the weight of the evidence, but a judge still found him at fault uh, for infidelity. <laughs> and so I sometimes I, I it just blows my mind as to what we have to do in this situation in order to prove um, that inf- the the adultery was consented to by both adult by both parties. Yeah. You know? Um and, and I, I sometimes I, I just I, well I, at least in that case I was like I, I don't get it. Like what else do we have to do to prove consent or that they're swingers? Yeah. You know, have you ever had to prove up a, the parties were swingers? Though? Well, and, and that's part of the fortunate thing. I, I think that fortunately, the opposing counsel in the case that I was referencing, and probably every other case that I've handled where there are swingers and open marriages, I've had quite a few cases that fit those descriptions. Uh, fortunately, opposing counsel did not take the ridiculous approach of claiming adultery. Um, so I've really never had to battle it. Um, you know, because I fortunately had attorneys, uh, I would assume that just handled things the intelligent way. Yeah, that, that's true. It always helps to have an intelligent opposing counsel too. Um, let me ask you a question, leaning back to our, our last episode though. Do you think there's any cultural biases in the counties uh, with their perception of either the swinging lifestyle? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, we uh, we're right on the the fence line, so to speak, of Travis and Williamson County right. here at our office. Yes, and you know, right in the middle of Central Texas, which is really interesting because Texas is, uh, is generally speaking a red state, but there are pockets of it that are very blue. And and I'm not going to draw this into a political discussion, but there are because it's really not. But there are some slightly different cultural slash uh, philosophical opinions that if I'm painting with a super broad brush uh, can vary based upon your locale. I mean, that just goes without saying. Right. Um, so in Austin, uh, Travis County, you're going to get judges that are going to be uh, more liberal in every sense of that phrase. Um, I would say towards 
um, these types of, of acts, right. uh, adulterous acts, things right. like that. It's it's not necessarily that you're going to get them on the record saying, oh, too bad, so sad, move on. But you just won't really see them come down hard on either side mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to adultery. Mm-hmm. You talk about Williamson County, uh, a very conservative county, um, you know, philosophically and ideologically. And you will, and, and, and I'm not going to paint all the judges there with the same brush, but I will say it's much more likely that you get a result that uh, deals with the infidelity more aggressively. I got you. Yeah, that that makes sense. I I was thinking the exact same thing. I I just never had to. um, I just I I don't have I don't have uh, a lot of experience with a a liberal judge um, when I've had a fault based divorce based off infidelity. So I just wanted to know if if there was a difference that that you saw based off your cases and your experience. Let's move on. We have. The other most common, uh, it's it's a most common one, most common fault based divorce that I use as well. But I believe uh, this will probably be a most most common fault based for a lot of attorneys out there. But it's this wide casting cruelty uh, fault based divorce, and again, it's physical violence, other conduct that endangers the life or safety of the complaining spouse, abusive or derogatory language, neglect, humiliation threats of violence, et cetera. Now it's easier when you have a protective order um, against one spouse and family. there's a family violence finding, right? And then cruelty, of course, would be included in the basis for the divorce. Um, and, and that would be direct evidence if already proven up. Is there other evidence that you include in there that not necessarily would amount to family violence, but would be that in which you would argue cruelty as the basis for the divorce. I mean, you can, uh, you can insert quite a number of things, you know, you can insert, um, uh, destroying relationships. Uh, it could be that one parent has ruined or attempted to ruin the relationship of a parent with the child. Mm-hmm. Um, you can liken that to alienation, right? Um, alienation, unfortunately, doesn't even show up in the family code. It's not there at all. Um, and it's a term that, that that's going to be certainly for another show, but it uh, that could fit one example. Um, I want to throw in something else that you know kind of came to my mind as we've been talking about cruelty, uh, and that is that almost every time that I have alleged cruelty in a case uh, or pled cruelty in a case on behalf of a client, there is a competing claim of cruelty that we get or at least competing testimony of cruelty. And the, the game is this, if, if you really want to know what the game is uh, for the listeners out there, the game is to try and if you're the one asserting the cruelty initially, it's to uh, obviously put as much cruelty out there so that uh, you're, you're going to not get it out balanced by the other side. Of course, the other side, their game is we're going to try to present as much cruelty from our side so that the the attack is diffused and it looks like just two bad spouses. So that's really the, the game is, is the severity and degree to which one spouse can outpace the other on I've been the cruel, the cruelty victim versus, you know, the cruelty perpetrator. I would agree with that. I, I think though that every time I've had a trial 
where we're trying to prove up cruelty. I think it becomes who's more believable as well and who's more genuine during testimony uh, because anyone can say anything under the sun, I guess. Uh, it just becomes who's more believable. And at the end of the day, I think most of the cases that I've had, it comes down to the judge saying, oh, you guys were both bad to each other, probably shouldn't be married, and let's just cut this thing 50-50 and get the divorce done. You know, And they don't attribute fault to any party because that's what you get. You get a he said, she said type of battle, and then who becomes more believable? If both are believable, then what is the judge supposed to do? If if both are not as genuine as a judge believes, then what is the judge supposed to do? Especially in that scenario where there's not a lot of documentary evidence and it's just just verbal. testimony. Yeah. Yes. In the so no, I've I've seen that uh, so many times where the judge is put in a rough spot. I, I think it's an interesting thing to add also to what you said is, you know, you'll get a there's almost a tactic that I would liken to just exhaust the judge. Uh, you know, you've got, and I see this happen all the time. Uh, and I explain this to clients, um, particularly when their case is clear cut. I, I can almost script what the other side's going to do. If your case for cruelty or for adultery is clear cut, the defense will be clutter up and cloud up and smoke up, however, you, whatever cliche you want to use. Try to throw as much at the judge to confuse the judge, to exhaust the judge, to overwhelm the judge to where the judge is just tired and you get the judge to that, that either that lunch break or that afternoon, I need to get home and see my family. And the judge is just like, I've heard enough of this, right. you know, war of the roses. Like I, I, these people need a divorce. I can't decide what's up and down anymore. Um, I'm just going to say both of you guys are horrible to with each other. And I, I'm excited to grant you the divorce. Right. You're divorced today. <laughs> yes. so I've seen the exhaust of the judge. We're going to call it right now. This yeah. is the first time I've said that phrase. The exhaust the judge approach. I hate to say that it works sometimes because I, I just I hate that concept because really what you're saying when you're trying to exhaust a judge is you're trying to confuse truth Yes, and you're not being straightforward. Uh, you're trying to misdirect the judge. Yeah, that's actually, well, you're playing on his... You're playing on his traits as a human being, right? Because, yes, judges do get exhausted. They're humans, especially when you're running up against a, a lunch break or at the end of the day. So I would agree with that. Let me ask you a question, though. When you have a cruelty basis that is supported by violence and family violence, uh, and I guess this is really a finding of family violence. Let me ask you a question. If one spouse is claiming family violence and they're your client, does it matter to you whether or not they've called the police? Does it matter to you whether or not they've initiated an application for a protective order? I think it matters in some situations. I think that if you have a client comes in and says, you know, we're going to pursue fault-based divorce based upon family violence. Uh, of course, I'm going to ask, did you call the police? Do we have right. any police reports? Right. Uh, the impact of that is this. If the client comes in and says, I have no pictures of bruising. I have no pictures of holes in walls. I've got no witnesses who will say it happened. I've got no witnesses who, who will say that even after the fact, I had a bruised face or a bruised arm or I, you know, some, I, I had some physical effect from this or even a counselor who I've reported this to, you know, confidentially in my counseling sessions. If I have none of that other extra information, 
a police report is super important because if it just comes down to he said, she said, oh, there's 10 times that he pushed me against the wall and tried to choke and kill me. Well, and you've got no police reports. You've got none of that other list of evidence that I just mentioned. It's going to be hard. And it, it, and I never would tell a client, you know, I'm, I'm going to ignore your story. I'm not going to push it to the judge. I mean, if a client is always in charge to, I'd say to a very high degree, minus us, of, of course, misleading or lying to a judge, right. the, court, the, the client's in charge of how we present the case. But I will tend to try and dissuade the client a little bit when they just don't have uh, that extra information, such as a police report. It, it just makes it impossible to prove up. I mean, besides testimony, uh, because it, it ends up being a he said, she said exactly what we were saying, right? I He did this. No, I didn't. You know, <laughs> and at the end of the day, if you, if you are running up against that time, like we mentioned, and you try to exhaust the judge with all this testimony. I mean, in fact, what, what also happens if it's just he said, she said it is the other side will get emboldened because uh, I, I mean, there's clearly one truth to a situation. I mean, something either happened or it didn't. Two stories and one yes. truth. But when 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 our client, for example, is saying this is what happened uh, and let's say it is actually the truth, you know, we get into court, the other side almost invariably will make up knowing that it's he said, she said, well, he or she came at me first and I pushed away defensively to try and uh, defend against their aggression. So in other words, the tables get flipped and it, and it turns back into the exhausted judge approach, right? which is, you know, you've heard all this testimony about how she claims that, you know, I hurt her. Well, here's all the information that shows the opposite, but it's all just, he said, she said. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's a lot of defense um, or self-defense arguments every time a, a um, argument for family violence occurs that, I was just defending myself against what was initially done to me. So I, I, I just had one this week, in fact, and um, those are really, really common. You know what else is interesting, though? At the very beginning, you mentioned about mental abuse that can be included in the cruelty uh, basket of fault-based divorce. I get this. I get asked this a lot, uh, and it's normally in response to my question of whether or not there's family violence, physical violence, and they, I get a lot of, no, there's been a lot of mental abuse. And I ask them, how long, what exactly is he or she doing? Um, just to get the proper facts and make sure that we can substantiate a claim for cruelty. Um, you mentioned that you like to see it, well, not like to see it, that would be a bad way to put it, but you would feel comfortable with evidence that would be a a track record of mental abuse over time. What what is enough time, and and how would you how would you define mental abuse? Great point, you raise. We should have actually uh, made it more front and center because yeah. that's probably the one of the most common forms of abuse. I mean, I think in this day and age, you know, it, it, not to denigrate our elders, but 50, 60, 75 years ago. Domestic violence, I think if I'm going to suspect this is true, I think it was probably a little more common. I'm not suggesting that it doesn't exist anymore. I think there was more some, common, less reported. That's right. And I think social media, the Internet has just put such a stigma on it. Yes. That men are generally more afraid. Again, not in any way saying this does not still happen. I just think it's uh, probably less common than it used to be in the past. 
I think, you know, women or men, they're finding ways to inflict some damage on their spouse that is more under the radar. And I think this emotional abuse kind of fits that. And I'll give you three examples that came to mind that I think fit emotional abuse. One is um, I'm going to control 100% of everything financial that involves you. Uh, it might be that there's a breadwinner and a non-breadwinner and the breadwinner uh, just locks out control hundred percent. He controls the purse. That's right. Right. Uh, or she, it, yes. it, we can go either way. Sure. On that. Sure. And uh, another example is, and this is going to sound shocking to some people, but it does happen. There are some spouses that prevent or restrict uh, behaviors. For example, I've had um, uh, a female client come in and was, was tearful and I couldn't believe this. She'd been living this way, but he would not let her uh, spend time with certain friends. He would not let her communicate with certain friends. He would not let her go to lunches uh, unless he knew well in advance where they were going, what they were doing. Uh, and he had to approve of it. Um, just extreme physical control. Mm -hmm. Like everything you do has to be run by me. Right. And I just can't believe that there's actually people that live that way. Um, or, you know, particularly people inflicting that kind of control. Right. Right. You know, I, 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 I would agree with you. I mean, especially about the finances. I have a lot of clients that um, either have been victims and don't know that they're victims. You know, they just feel like they're out of the loop, right? Where they don't know anything about their finances, where I can see that the other party has been controlling it for the entire marriage. Um, and then restricting behaviors, certain behaviors, like hanging out with friends, hanging out with family sometimes, actually, right? Where they alienate one side of the family and from not seeing the kids, especially when kids are involved. How about how about this? Have you ever heard a situation or would you put this into the cruelty basket? How about withholding sex? 100%. Uh you know, withholding sex, uh, you know, if you just do a Google search is withholding sex, emotional abuse, uh, you will find a resounding answer of yes. Now, obviously you and I are not mental health professionals. However, right. Uh, it goes without saying it's, it's just almost like common knowledge. I mean, you're in a marriage, the duration, frequency, quality of sex is never a guarantee. Am it's, I right on that? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a moving target. Yeah. <laughs> however, um, you know, when you talk about using sex, purposefully using sex as a tool to control, manipulate, gain advantage, control outcomes, um, inflict damage, inflict pain, that that is a that is a clear cut example, I think, of something you could use uh, as cruelty. Now, interestingly, sometimes these claims cross pollinate, so uh, it brings to mind the fact that if you bring a claim that so-and-so was adulterous. I have had uh, cases where the other spouse says, well, it was emotional abuse because he or she would not have sex with me. Right. So then you yeah. have the competing claims there. Right. You think that's a, that's a, uh, you think that's a strategy? Well, obviously it's a strategy and a defense to adultery. But what I meant was, do you think that is created by, the opposing counsel or is that created, you know, intuitively by that party? Yeah. You read my mind. You, <laughs> this is why we work together. Right. right. 
You read my mind because I was seeing the exact same thing. There are so many times where these competing arguments, you know, the exhausted judge, all these various techniques are, I guess, depending on whether you're the client or the foe, uh, fortunate or unfortunate that the attorney concocts them. Yes. And it, it, it's it's unfortunate at times that we're put in these positions to to do the job that we are because our job is to fully inform educate our client on all available defenses, uh, claims that we can make. And it's, it's really, you know, a mixture of the client's input and our input, of course, to determine whether we can ethically pursue those. Sure. However, uh, to directly answer your question, plenty of times when I know for a fact, the attorney on the other side, uh, particularly, particularly if they have a reputation for, uh, let's just call it, I'm going to put this very kindly, being creative. Yes. Um, that that happens. You know, I would think that it happens without even the knowledge of your client by just asking questions and, you know, like how often do you have sex, right? With your spouse? Oh, once every three months. Well, it sounds like he's withholding sex from you. Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it sounds like you're a victim of cruelty, right? Yep. I, I could see that happening. That's why. Yeah, lawyers can certainly find ways to generate claims. For sure. Uh, of course, under the guise of just doing our job. But, you know, it can be taken at times too far. Um, but, you know, there's one other form of emotional abuse that I want to hit on before we moved on to the next topic was uh, I have seen emotional abuse also in the form of I'm not going to allow my spouse to work. And, and it sounds wild. Uh, it, it, you know, there's probably less going, man, I wish my spouse would work. Uh, <laughs> how do I get that to happen? But, you know, can we trade spouses here? What's going on? Uh, no, there good are, point. there good are, point. there are situations where, um, and again, we're, we're painting with the broad brush. I'm picking a, f- a few examples here, but I have had some where, uh, the husband was the breadwinner and my female client, um, was it told that she could not work. And typically the reason is it's the most insecure husband on planet earth. He's worried that she's going to go work and meet somebody in a workplace uh, and, and move on. And, and I can partly, part of the time I can actually understand why he'd be so worried because usually these husbands I come to find out are the biggest assholes of all time. Right. And they've dug themselves such a deep hole. They probably controlled them financially. They probably controlled them physically. Now they're just adding the last coup de gras, which is you can't work. And they're terrified because they probably know deep down when they look in the mirror that, that they're a horrible spouse. Yeah. And that if she literally just saw the light of day and the postman walked by, he might be a better suit suitor for him. <laughs> right. Sorry for her than, than him. Right. Right. Uh, so it, it, it's just maximal control. I would go just, even one step above that because I've had, uh, that's a good point. I didn't even think about till you brought it up, but I've had a lot of clients in the same situation and, and it's, it was the guy who was the breadwinner and the client was my client uh, or the client was the wife, I should say. Um, but, it was more that he didn't want her to have a life outside that didn't revolve around him, you know, and not necessarily afraid that she would meet somebody outside of the marriage, you know, so it was even more insecure and to a higher level, right. That she couldn't have a life outside of him. Yeah. It's like, geez, <laughs> if that's not cruel, what is Yeah. how, let me ask you though, in that certain situation, right. Obviously this is going to be testimonial evidence that has to come out. I mean, 
does your client have to say he didn't want me to work, right? And how does a judge perceive that? And what do what does the judge need, right? Yeah, it, you know those scenarios you can maybe get by if your client is way more credible the other side because there's going to be competing he said she said yes you're really hoping to get some text people don't really talk in these ways via email you know husband and wife they're not going to be emailing no. each other this stuff but it's going to be a passing text message where it says you know I'd rather you not apply or you know, aren't you, it'll be innuendo, you know, aren't you happy? Like, why can't you just be happy at home? Why, am I not providing a good enough life? Yeah. Do, do you need more money? Is there a problem with money? And just continued suggestions and pressure that you finding a job is not what you need to do. <laughs> it's not as direct as what, how we would, how we would like it, right? It's, it's going to be this puzzle that we have to put together along with supplementing it with, uh, with testimony from the client. And sometimes that's an encouraging uh, way to put it to the client that, you know, look, we're used to putting these puzzles together. Like it doesn't have to be totally clear cut. Matter of fact, just like when we talked about adultery or cruelty or any of these, you're rarely going to get someone saying, I admit I was cruel to you. I admit I committed Texas Family Code defined adultery. You know, it's not going to happen. Right. I uh, admit to emotionally abusing you. Uh, you know, it's not going to get it. So it is always piecing things together. And it's really a matter if you go and talk to your attorney, you lay out the, the specific reasons for it. The attorney filters it. If there's a case, it's going to be because you can piece it all together. And a good attorney, if it's there, can piece it together. Yeah. And. And the same is true as well. A, a good attorney won't desensitize the issue, but if it's not there, I'll also tell you the probability that it's unlikely that we're going to be able to prove a fault in divorce. You know, why the next question is why did the state legislature put fault into the Texas family code and why do the courts find fault in the, uh, in any divorce or not any divorce, but in certain type of divorces, right? And there has to be an impact to your divorce. Um, I tell my clients, and, and this is one part of it, but it's going to be an unequal distribution of marital assets, right? And we can get into percentages here, but generally speaking for our listeners, right? And again, this is not legal advice, but generally speaking with a no-fault divorce, if the property was acquired after the date of marriage, then the distribution of that property would be 50-50. And right now, if we have a fault base, and we're talking fault base now, and if we were able to prove that up and the court and there was a finding of any fault in the divorce, then we're really looking at an unequal distribution of marital assets. In my experience, I've seen it as high as a 60-40 in favor of my client. Um, I've also seen it 55-45. I've never seen anything more than 60-40. I think that's a good way to put it because for the vast majority of cases, uh, it's going to be if you get a fault-based finding, you're looking at a bump of somewhere between 5 and 10%. Um, for certain size estates, you know, we go back to our, our little saying is the juice worth the squeeze. Right. Is it really going to be worth the 5% or 10% to go spend another 10, 20,000 plus dollars on yeah, attorney's fees? 25,000, 30, yeah. It, it may not. But it, depending on the size of the estate, if you've got a multi-million dollar estate, sure. every now and again, we get a case like that. Um, it could be. But it, again, that that's assuming that you can find the fault. 
and then it, it, it could potentially land in that range. Um, I have seen it on the maximal side, just to put a ceiling, I've seen it on the maximal side of 70. I've never heard of a case more than 70%, but that would be the perfect judge, the most egregious facts of probably anyone in the county for a, a multi-year period. All right. And that's the kind of case you could potentially get in that range. But I would, I've never set the stage that way for a client. I say, if, if you can present significant cruelty, adultery, some one of these fault-based grounds, you're looking at maybe somewhere in the five to 10% range. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I've never seen it over 60, 40, 70, 30. There must've been really egregious facts that were credible and on record that the judge found for that. I want to mention one thing though, that uh, and this isn't the topic for today, but I just want to plant a seed that uh, a disproportionate property division can actually occur absent a finding of fault. Um, there are factors for that and that's going to be for a, a future show, but um, I don't want anybody to think that, well, the only way that there has get, to be fault. That's right. There right. doesn't always have to just be fault to get there. So the real question is, and, and, I, and I just want to backtrack a little because this can, this can also the unequal distribution of marital assets um, is not just the only impact of fault divorces as well. Um, you know, it could, it could, if, if egregious enough could lead into custody, um, issues of the kids, especially when you have a finding of family violence, um, spousal support as well. So this is not the, the only impact, but moving on to the next part of this would be what should your attorney do or what should you do if you're a pro se litigant, right? One, at the very jump, you have to plead for this thing. If you have not pled for a fault-based divorce, then the issue or the request itself is not in front of the court. So you have to put it in your pleadings. Now, sometimes I've pled a very straightforward pleading without fault. And then you, uh, you acquire the evidence from your client that you didn't initially know of. And then you have to amend your pleadings. But the amendment is serves as the same as the original pleading that you're, you're, you have to plead whatever you want to present before the court. And if you're trying to plead fault, then it has to be in that plea. That's right. And just to be clear, also what you mean by that is it doesn't mean that you've got to put all the facts of exactly what he or she did that amounted to cruelty or adultery. You know, on September 15th, this is what happened. I mean, in theory, you could put some of those facts in there, but uh, what, what is typical and what is accepted is just giving notice that you are making that claim. You don't have to like put the scenarios in there that's excessive and unnecessary and, and a judge probably wouldn't want to read all of that. Yeah. It's just a general, it's a general, um, I guess uh, a general statement telling the court that you are pleading for fault. Um, also, like we mentioned before, you want to have the proper evidence. So when we're going through our evidence of infidelity and cruelty, right. And you have circumstantial evidence, you're going to use documentation. You're going to use, um, testimony from your clients, and you're going to put together this puzzle to present for the court. I like to tell my clients that we have to put together a logical stepping stone for the courts to, to take him from the assumption of fault to a findings of fault. And so I like to put together these puzzles with these foundational blocks 
if you will, that the, the judge can jump from these blocks, these logical blocks in order to make that finding. That's what I tell uh, my clients. How do you explain it to them? Well, you know, using the puzzle analogy, you, you definitely are going to try and piece the puzzle together for the judge because the judge is a stranger to the case. Yes. What you don't want to do is make it uh, another layer of puzzle making for your attorney. So what you want to do is just like you would with a judge, you want to assume uh, and rightfully so that the people you're working with are completely ignorant of all the facts. Even if you had a lengthy consultation with the attorney and you laid all everything out, and maybe you had a, just a very thorough, even an hour long type consultation where you go through every single element of the abuse and the, the, the misconduct, you want to just spoon feed in the most organized, coherent way, the information. And the typical way I ask clients to, to gather this information is, you know, create a chronological uh, fact um, type outline that gives the date and the fact, the date and the fact, and couple that with a reference to a set of files that will likely just be digital files on a USB or something like that. Right. So basically, you've got like a table of contents that's descriptive com uh, that couples with the file that you're trying to connect it to. And that way, you, you know, there's, there's two reasons you want to do it that way. Number one, your attorney is going to spend a ton of money of your hard-earned money, I should say, um, trying to dissect how all the information, the evidence connects. You don't right. want to do that. Second of all, you need your attorney as your advocate to, to be your brain, to be as clear about what's happening as you understand that things are happening. Now, granted, we're never going to get exactly to that level, but you want to get them as close as possible. So the presentation and the clarity that you can provide your attorney is just critical. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I, I think that along with with keeping it simple, um, you don't you don't want to overcomplicate it with irrelevant evidence because if you do that, it's just gonna bring another layer to the judge has to unpeel, you know, and, and your attorney too, which which costs you ultimately at the end money, you know. So you want to keep it simple. Um lastly, and this is what I like to do is I I like to request the the distribution of unequal or the unequal distribution of marital assets at trial via a spreadsheet. And I'll, I'll already put a 60, 40 split and request that of the court. I'm not sure if this is your practice, but I found that if I laid it out for the court, showing all the assets, showing a proper calculation. Um, and even though I'm asking for the high side, 60, 40, the court can always bring that down if it, if it deems necessary. I agree. Uh, it goes back to that spoon feeding concept. You know, you, it's always easiest to make it make it simple for the judge. M make it to where the judge can just look at what you're asking for, and there's no heavy lifting. The judge can look at what you're asking for and say, "I'm going to grant what you requested." Instead of, "I'm going to try and figure out how to accomplish the objective you have, which is a disproportionate division." You've told me exactly how to do it. I'm going to just put a check mark next to it. I'm going to agree with what you presented me. Right. Okay. So Justin, we talked about default-based divorce in the cold, talked about the evidence presented, and we talk about the impact of a findings of fault-based. How common is it to have a finding of a fault-based divorce? You know, kind of like we talked, I guess, briefly a little about that earlier, but it's really not a common thing. Um, and, and it's not common for a number of reasons. For one, most of our cases settle. So we talked about that's already one big filter. If the case settles, the judge will almost, 
I'd say almost 100% of the time, refuse to include a fault-based finding. Yes. So if a vast majority of your cases settle, uh, then that already excludes a ton of those cases from fault-based findings. And then within the cases that don't settle, even the ones where there's been a pleading of uh, fault-based divorce, it's just not not a judge's preference to mark one side as the faulting, you know, the, the outfall party. Uh, I, I think judges have seen, you know, most judges we work with, they've seen enough divorces to know that even in the semi-bad case, there's enough fault to go around. It's got to be so one-sided that the judge just goes, there's truly a, an innocent party. And, and how many how many contentious relationships are there to where it's really one-sided? It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's not that common. Well, I mean, we said it before, right? There's there's his story, there's her story, and then there's the truth, right? Yep. And sometimes we're all trying to get towards the truth, but it gets warped by, you know, different evidence and, and different things that people say. Um, and I, I would agree. I mean, we we hardly um well, I, I should say hardly, but it, it's uncommon, especially for settled cases um, and uncontested cases, of course, to have a fault base uh, type of divorce. The the part that is most evident in a fault based, or I should say, most common for fault based divorce, if it comes up, is going to be the infidelity. Though, and I think I see that come across my desk maybe once a week, actually, in consultations, and and, and cruelty may be part of that, but. Um, I just think cruelty is much harder to prove up in my experience. Well, thank you, Myron, for uh, the content today. Thank all the listeners for tuning in. Uh, this is another episode of Texas Family Law Unfiltered. This was our episode number two. It's not your fault. Uh, stay tuned each week. We're going to post a new episode every Saturday. We hope that you continue to listen for valuable content on Texas divorce, all things Texas family law, and uh, we will see you next week. See you later.